Recently, Carolyn and I were in a car accident, and the car we were driving was totaled. And uh, that was frustrating enough because the car was already paid off. Have you ever had one of those moments where you like you pay off the car, you know, after years of car payments, and you think, now we're going to save some money. And I'll be darned if the month we didn't pay off one car, we wreck the car that's actually paid off, and then now we're back into car payments again. Maybe you've never experienced that frustration, but I can just assure you that it is a time where I am tested to believe that God is in charge of all things. It's one of those moments when, when the chips are really down, you find yourself wondering, do I really believe, can I really rest that God is sovereign even over the frustrations that I experience on a day-to-day basis. I remember back to a formative experience I had that has helped me in this regard, if I'll reflect on it. And it was back when I was a young professional, just out of college, bought my first car and uh, wasn't really paying attention, which hasn't genuinely changed in about 30 years, but I was driving and uh, ran into the back of a car uh, as I was turning a corner because for some unknown reason, this person was <clears throat> stopped in, in an exit on-ramp, and uh, that frustrates me too, but that's another story for another day. Well, I, I, I was obviously in a pinch, because as a young professional, I was already on thin ice financially. I was under a lot of pressure and wasn't exactly sure how I was going to pay for insurance, which... Hard to believe 30 years ago was pricey. I can't imagine what it would be if you lived in the Washington, D.C. area now and you're a young man with a brand new car and a subpar driving record. So I was feeling it. And uh, I remember very specifically an experience I had that very day when I went back to my house and I was praying because I was so filled with anxiety and I was so mad at myself. And if I was going to be perfectly candid, I was a little frustrated with God too. So I was praying and I'm very careful to say uh, that God spoke to me. Uh, Perhaps it's because of the charismatic church experiences I had where God seemed to be speaking to everybody all the time and and then people just start imagining that he's speaking to them and he isn't. And I even went through a cycle of that in my life where I was attributing to God things that weren't really from God. So I'm really, uh, well, cautious, I would say, but... This was one of those times where the conversation in my head that I was having during prayer, I really believe was spirit-directed because there were some questions being framed in my mind in such a vivid way that I, I, I have to imagine that if God does speak to people, this is the way he would do it. I, I remember while I poured out my heart uh, and, and really my frustrations about how out of money I was and how it really was my fault and, and how scared I was because I already didn't have the money barely to make it and now we're going to tack on an extra couple, three, four hundred dollars a month. And very quietly, in an unexpected place in my mind, a question came to my head, was this your fault? As if it was God asking me and I answered, yes. And almost immediately after that, another follow-up question came to my mind, which was, did I know you were going to do this? And I remember thinking to myself, yes. But it was the third meditation, if you want to call it that, that really transformed me and has actually formed a building block for 
a 30-year journey of faith into many unexpected turns. And, and what came to my mind was this thought, Chuck, don't worry. I knew this was going to happen, and I provided in advance for your needs. Now, this is what Scripture says, so you don't need to have a supernatural existential experience with God speaking to you to get this. But for whatever reason, I knew this in my heart, and there was something about the encounter and prayer and desperately praying before God and expressing my frustration, expressing my worry, that he used that time to cement in my heart and in my mind a truth. It, it wasn't, as I mentioned, the first time I thought I was carrying on a conversation with the Holy Spirit in my mind, but it was one of the first times I came face to face with the beautiful and peace-giving reality of God's sovereignty, and God's sovereignty even over my mistakes. I've lived enough now to tell you that I've made some really big boo-boos. I've done some things that most people would say that would cost you, and yet I've seen God miraculously provide for me in spite of myself. I'm amazed. I look at my life and I think, I don't know how I ended up here as foolish as I am. And I know many of you could say the same thing. As you reflect back on your life, you will get more and more introspectively grateful for what God has done and how he's provided for you and me in spite of ourselves. Today we're going to look at Jonah's prayer again from Jonah chapter 2. And specifically, we're going to focus on verse 3 and peer into something that was a foundation to Jonah's faith and should be for ours too, and it's God's sovereignty over all things. And not just some things, all things. This includes man's free will and the resulting evil and chaos that often comes from it. Scripture is full of declarations about how God's will is never thwarted, and that when he wants to do something and he's set to do it, Nothing can keep him from doing it. The Psalms say in Psalm 115, 3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. You see, he created us. And while he loves us, it's imperative for us to understand that he is not submitted to our wills. Quite the contrary. We are called to submit to his will. And when his children, like Jonah or your pastor, don't willingly submit to his will, well, he helps them submit to his will. And this is what was happening in Jonah's life. He had determined, I am not going to do what God's called me to do. And he thought he could be a rebellious child and God would just throw up his hands and go, well, there's nothing I can do. There quite simply was something God could do, would do, and did. Because God had a will. He wanted Jonah to speak to the Ninevites. He wanted to use Jonah. And there was nothing Jonah was going to be able to do to avoid that. We look in the passage of Jonah again, verse 3 says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. 
You see Jonah's perspective here that he recognizes that the sea and everything in it is the Lord's, your waves, your billows. But it is interesting that he sees even more clearly than that, that God is in charge of his circumstances. He says, you cast me into the deep. Did God cast him into the deep? If my memory serves me correctly, and it was just a few few verses ago, uh, the sailors threw him overboard. Well, what Jonah knows and we're aware of is that the sailors were only doing what God had determined they would do. Jonah understood that God uses human agents to bring about his will for our lives. God may not be the primary cause but he has what theologians refer to as secondary causal power. What it just simply means is, is that in his foreknowledge, in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, God ordains that the free will actions of human beings, sometimes those actions are evil, actually get mysteriously folded into his ultimate plan for our lives and for his glory. We read this in Romans chapter 8 as Paul talks not only about our circumstances, but about our our very salvation. The theologians of which I spoke refer to this section of scripture as the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation, or the sequence of God's decrees that bring about our salvation. In verse 28 it begins, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, all things For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is speaking of God's sovereignty. We use this word sovereign. It's really just the word for the king, the ruler, the one who determines all that should come to pass, the one who is ruling our lives, ruling our world. And having a perspective on God's sovereignty is critical for the Christian because it offers a peace that even when things go badly and even when people who are doing evil and may even be plotting against us, when these things are happening, God has promised to use those things for his good. He is not unaware of these circumstances. In fact, he is allowing them, secondarily causing them. He is watching and superintending these things to bring about his purposes. It offers peace to us in those circumstances because we know that God's not only in charge, but that in the end we will see this As a good thing. I think an important question, if you were a regular attendee at PRISM, would be why do churches like PRISM and other what we would call gospel centered churches spend so much time talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus? And it's because not only is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ the means by which we've been made right with God, but because in that experience, the real space time event of 33 AD, the moment when Jesus of Nazareth willingly went to his death to pay for the sins of the world, that experience has so many 
examples for us. It has so many pictures for us. It shows us so much about who God is by virtue of what Jesus saw, understood, how he was able to walk through these situations. He taught us how to suffer well. He taught us how to love enemies. He showed us how to forgive even those who were persecuting him. Perhaps, in my judgment, most amazing and most helpful for me in sympathizing or, or getting a picture of God sympathizing with us is the glimpse we have inside Jesus' struggle just before he was arrested and then beaten and scourged and then sent to the cross of Calvary to be crucified. We see Jesus wrestling with his humanity while he reasserts his trust in God's sovereign kindness. But in the death of Christ is the ultimate demonstration of God's superintending of all things for his son's glory and our ultimate good. Keep this in mind. Evil people did evil to Jesus of Nazareth to bring about that which is not only good, but ultimately glorifying to God. This was God's purposed intent from all of eternity. He decreed it from the beginning of time. He decreed it before you and I were born that Jesus would die for the sins of anyone who would ever put their faith in him. This was the plan of God. In Jesus' case, God ordained that evil people doing evil things would bring about his greatest exaltation. This is an amazing thought, and this is the picture of God's sovereignty that I want to paint as we sort of weave together Jesus' experience from Mark chapter 14 and where Jonah is in this moment inside the whale, inside the big fish if you don't want to technically go with the whale thing. And I have two really perspectives on God's sovereignty from both Jesus' experience, and we'll look at that and then reference back to Jonah chapter 2, verse 3. Two thoughts as it comes to and as it relates to God's sovereignty. And the first is this, that God sovereignly uses our stresses as presses. Now that's, a, I understand, a tricky use of language, so you'll forgive me, I'll explain it here in just a minute, but... Read with me the passage, Mark 14, 32 through 34. This is Jesus' experience after he has the Lord's Supper for the first time with his friends, and now they're going to head to this place and prepare for his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, if you want to call it that, his crucifixion, his death. And Jesus is heading to a place in the Mount of Olives. The scriptures say they went to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. The name Gethsemane actually means oil press. Gethsemane was a section of the Mount of Olives where they actually would extract the oil from the olives. An oil press like this one, what it does is it takes the olive and it crushes it so that the needed oils can be extracted. 
In this area, they would take harvested olives and process them. And we know from Luke 22, verse 39, that Jesus and his disciples made it a custom to rest at the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. So when we say God sovereignly uses our stresses as presses, what we are saying is, is that the difficulties, if we go ahead and roll forward on them, thank you. If the difficulty that we experience in life are, are really a metaphor for God bringing out of us, producing in us something that will glorify him. We know that in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, it was the custom for them. We know this because Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus and the disciples when he brought the mob to arrest them. So at this place of rest, the Lord took his best friends with him to pray and express to them his distress and sorrow. And I think of the divine irony. Now we call it sovereignty of Jesus being emotionally crushed for us in the middle of a place called the oil press. You know, for all these years of hearing the word Gethsemane, you'd think it would resonate with us that this is the place where we see Jesus under the emotional weight of our sin being ostracized from the Father and taking on the judgment that is due us crushing the life out of him. It says in Luke 22, too, that Jesus' sweat became like drops of blood. People have speculated that it was actual blood, but the, the metaphor seems to be that he was under such intense stress that he was dropping blood-sized beads of sweat. Jesus is experiencing a crushing as he prayed and comes to terms with God's plan to save us. And I think we have to understand that if God used difficulty to bring about the salvation of our souls, if he could oversee the betrayal of Judas and the beating and scourging from the Romans and the dastardly deception of the Jewish establishment and bring about something beautiful and glorifying to him through it, it's going to be part of his plan for our lives to do the same. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This hope is not only that God has our best in mind, but this is looking forward to an eternal joy, an eternal hope that will be guided and directed to bring us to an experience of life and joy as he wants us to. We see that for all of eternity, we'll be able to reflect back and say, see, God brought me through these troubles and these trials, not because he just felt like it, but they actually brought about something in my life. That suffering produced an endurance that produced character and this character glorified him. And it gave me a sense of looking forward to that day when Christ would return. Matthew Henry, great theologian, says this, quote, The joy and peace of believers arise chiefly from their hopes. What is laid out upon them is but little compared with that, with what is laid up. For them. 
Therefore, the more hope they have, the more joy and peace they have. Christians should desire and labor after an abundance of hope. And there's a practical thing that goes on in us. There's a challenge to us that takes place when life gets difficult and we feel like people are messing with our worlds and, and, and things seem to not be working out the way we'd hoped. There is a challenge for us, spiritually speaking, to be able to find the eye of the hurricane, find that place in our lives where we are at rest, even as it seems like everything is swirling around us. Carolyn and I had an experience of this in the summer of 2011, basically to the end of the summer of 2012, when we were buying our house. And I'll make this story short because it could go on forever, but I'll just tell you that we found a house we really loved. It was kind of sort of our little dream house up on a hill in Duarte overlooking the valley with my little palm tree in the backyard. It was everything I'd ever wanted. It was, a first of all, a house in California, which I never thought I was ever going to own. And then it was the house I actually wanted in California, which is oddly um, unbelievable too. And it was at the very bottom of the real estate market, and this house was in the middle of a bank transaction short sale that had gone upside down. And so we entered into a process, hoping along with our realtor that in the end we were going to get this dream house for a dream price, one we could afford. And it took a year to get this thing closed. One year. Worse yet was at three different times we signed closing documents only to have the person who was in the house back out. She was well-versed in real estate and California squatting law and uh, was milking this bankruptcy of hers for all it was worth. And at some point, we began to feel like we were being played. And, and, and so if you can put yourself in my silly shoes for just a few minutes, which uh, my dream come true is right there. And somebody's messing with it. So all throughout this year, Carolyn and I had to kind of work together to remind ourselves that what we perceive to be the best is not the best. We're limited in our perspective. God may have something far better, and it may not be up on a hill with a palm tree. It may be something else we haven't even conceived of. We had to actually exercise faith where we said, Jesus, you died for us. Your word says that you Father didn't spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. We're exercising our faith and saying, I want to be able to believe and trust that if this doesn't work out, we in the end will be glad. Ever been there with something in your life, a relationship you had? You had someone in your sights, you thought, the ideal person for me, and then, you know, you just get anxious and worried and, Next thing you know, the relationship's coming apart, possibly in part because your anxiety drove it apart. And ultimately what God's calling us to is a place where we can rest that he's sovereign over all things, that his will is best and trusting that as Jesus prayed, thy will be done, that it is good for us to know and rest amidst uncertainty and that God uses these stresses to produce something in us. He uses our stresses as presses. Whether you want to use the metaphor of an olive press or a wine press, 
This is God's methodology. He's going to take our lives like he did Jesus. And he's going to squeeze. And then beautiful things for his glory are going to happen. That's why the Apostle James could write in James 1, 2, and 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God is going to sovereignly use these trials, these stresses in our lives, and we can choose to submit to his process, or we can be miserable all the time, hoping against hope that one day we will have a perfect stress-free life, and then we can rest. You will spend the rest of your life frustrated. You can know rest today, I can know rest today, remembering, meditating on, praying as did Jonah, and reminding ourselves, you are sovereign over all things. In addition to him using our stresses for presses, the other thing we can see about God's sovereignty from both Jonah and specifically in Jesus' experience is that God allows evil to produce good. And this is a really hard one to get your arms around when you're dealing with somebody that is really trying to mess with your life. I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Uh, when we had this car accident recently, we realized that the person was at first, we didn't, they, weren't, they weren't insured. I'm thinking, how is it that I get tickets for everything and people drive around without insurance? And then finally we found out they, they were ultimately going to carry us but then they were underinsured, and so we're not going to hardly get anything. And so when you look at people kind of playing the system to kind of mess with your world, you can get really mad if you're guys like me. But God allows people at their worst to be used to produce good things. This is why he's God and we're not. This is why he's good. And in Jesus' experience in verses 35 and 36, Jesus is praying. And he falls to the ground, it says, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. You see, Jesus' experience, he knows God could change the circumstances if he wanted. Jesus himself says in another point in the, in the Gospels that he could have called down the angels and ended this thing. They were not short on power. They had determined that this was the best means by which to save human beings and to bring glory to the, majest, the majestic character of God that he graciously forgives Sinners, that he pursues us, that he rescues us, and that this would yield for all eternity worship and praise as the creator would deserve normatively. You see Jesus asking, but then submitting to the will of the Father. You're effectively seeing Jesus submitting to what he knows is going to happen, which is that evil people are going to do evil things to him. When you look at Jonah's life, it's similar. The sailors tossing a living man into the sea normatively would be considered an evil act, which is why the sailors themselves were like, God, don't hold us accountable for this. 
But this, which what I would discourage you from doing if you were like sailing out of the Pacific at Catalina Island, you don't want to just throw a live person overboard. They knew something wasn't right about what they were doing. And yet God had ordained from all eternity that this was going to be the means by which the storm was going to be settled and that he was finally going to bring Jonah to his rock bottom moment where he would submit to the Lord's will. It was God's will that Christ suffer as a substitute for us so we wouldn't suffer for our sins. The evil of men who brought about the unjust death of Jesus. This was just the surface. The suffering was not simply that friends or countrymen turned on him, but that his father turned his face away as we sing. It wasn't just the physical torture, but the emotional suffering whereby Jesus was burdened with our sin and therefore was, instead of us, judged unworthy to be in the presence of the Father. Westminster Seminary professor Brian Estelle says this when Jesus speaks of taking this cup from him. The cup metaphor is usually taken as no more than a metaphor for suffering. On the contrary, it is much more than that. In the Old Testament, the metaphorical use of cup often refers to God's punishment for sin. This cup is the cup of God's wrath against sin. Why did Christ not want to partake of this cup? It meant being utterly forsaken by God. This is why the Apostles' Creed speaks of Jesus' descent into hell. Now, it is possible, and some theologians believe that Jesus did descend into a literal hell full of torment, and that that chamber of evil couldn't stand his presence, so three days later it proverbially vomited him like Jonah leaving the whale, that, you know, Jesus actually physically went into a hell. That today I couldn't settle if you wanted me to, Uh, but what I can tell you is the essence of hell, what makes for hell is the absence of of the fellowship of the presence of God. This is what is promised to all who choose to pay for their own sins, an eternity separated from fellowship with God, rejecting dependency on Christ alone will earn you an eternity apart from God in hell. Christ's redemption comes through his sacrifice. Christ's salvation comes through his life offered in your place. The worst of what Jesus suffered was undoubtedly taking on the wrath of Almighty God in our place. Imagine the frustration. You hear Jesus saying on the cross, why have you forsaken me? You hear him crying out, Abba, Father. There's this distance now happening between he and the Father. The Father is turning his face away Picture in your mind uh, an adult being taken off to prison and the child knowing forever that they're never going to have a normal relationship with their parent ever again. They are separated. And the agony and the pain that would cause. And Jesus is the one being sentenced to prison. He's, he's feeling the, the distance, the emotional pain. And the Heidelberg Catechism Question 37, it says, During his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. 
This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. The good news, the gospel, is that this substitutionary atonement has in fact satisfied in total the wrath of God. We sing this. The wrath of God has been satisfied. The result of having our souls cleansed from sin through the blood of Christ is that now our physical being, our souls have been made pure and holy and now the Holy Spirit of God will and does reside in the literal soul of every believer in Jesus. Galatians 3 verses 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God's sovereignty allowed the unjust crucifixion of his innocent son and the resulting separation from him that this curse necessitated. And it turned what was an unthinkably evil action into eternal glory for his son and eternal life for all who look to Jesus for forgiveness. And if God not only allows this to be the means of grace, but ordains it to be so, how much so should we be comforted in our own struggles against people who mean to harm us? We need not fear a soul. My house on this hill um, is having some trouble these days with these little gophers. They're actually creating instability in our backyard. They've tunneled in and through, and you can walk on my backyard, and you can actually feel the ground sort of shifting underneath me because they can enter in through the side of the hill. And so I've tried to figure out what to do, you know, and I put, like, fertilizer down in their little holes and <laughs> tried to see if they would take to that. Oh, I know it sounds cruel, but my backyard could fall into the neighbors. And so I'm really, un- I'm a little concerned. And it reminded me of a, an occasion I had very similarly in Florida. Where I, I had a house and we'd just freshly put down some, some sod in the backyard. And in Florida, the, the enemy du jour was armadillos. And these armadillos would want to get the insects that were in the ground. And so they were coming into our backyard at night. And I would come out in this yard, which it took me quite a a bit of time to lay all this sod, had these big divots, kind of what a golf course looks like when I get done playing. Big hunks of grass missing. And I I had to go out and like, like I was at some polo event, stamping down the turf. And I was doing this every day. I was getting really frustrated. Then I discovered that they were living underneath my deck behind my house, but the deck was so close to the ground that I couldn't really get them out of their little cavern. So not only were these people, like, ruining my back, these people, these armadillos, (laughs) they felt like people at this stage in my life. They were ruining my backyard, but I couldn't, they'd actually taken up residence on my property. And that is ultimately frustrating. Well, Later that year, we went on vacation, and I was packing the house. I lost sight of my two-year-old son, who uh, was just this capri... Uh, what's the word? Capri- 
He was a, 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 a pesky little booger. He was running around all the time. All right. Uh, precocious. Thank you. Should have thought Mary Poppins, but there I am. He was a precocious little guy. And, um, and so he was around the back of the house. And before we were you know, going to leave, um, I, I said, Nick. And he came back up front. And we came back a week later. And um, what had happened was when Nick was playing behind the house, he turned the faucet on because he was messing with it. And he, and he turned the water full on. And when I called his name, he didn't turn it off. He just ran to me like any good son would. And <laughs> a week later, our backyard was flooded. I mean, he had installed a pool, um, and I didn't realize, I didn't even have the money to do that. You know, I, I, I honestly didn't have the funds to pay for a week's worth of full-on water. And so I was a little frustrated, and I didn't realize it till the water subsided, and then a week went by, and two weeks went by, and I recognized that the armadillos were no longer um, mucking up my backyard, and then it dawned on me that the water that Nick had done and you know, the, the, the pond that he'd created in our backyard had also run under the deck and into the cavernous holes created by the varmints. And my incredible little boy had solved my problem and probably killed the armadillos. <laughs> and the problem was solved. And so I, I saw in all of these experiences this really strange confluence of my hopes, expectations, needs, desires, disappointments, and watching God sort of weave all these things together so that we could know for sure that God sovereignly allows bad, evil, mistakes, bad choices on our, on our count that aren't even immoral choices, just bad choices. He uses all of this to produce good things. He uses these stresses as wine and olive presses and he uses these things in such a way to create Christ-glorifying character in us that ultimately reflects and brings greater clarity to our minds about who Jesus is. My favorite verse in this regard, and one I've memorized and I commend to you, is uh, what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50 when they turned him out to slavery. And then later when they came back to him. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. May God give us grace to see our life circumstances in the precious hands of a sympathetic Savior who loves us more than we can imagine and sovereignly oversees the challenges and difficulties and people in our lives to bring about his best for us. Let us pray. (coughs) Father, today we need, again, as you've done on a number of occasions in many of our lives, by your spirit, would you bring a, a, a clarity that Um, Maybe we have in our head a notion that you do certain things, you allow certain things. And, And at the same time, we need you to bring this home for us. Help us to see that that you not only allow things, but you ordain them to bring about glorifying to you things, good things, ultimately for us. 
but we have to trust you, Lord, to know that peace. And so I pray like Jesus, you would in this moment of pressing in us that you would produce an oil of joy that enables us to look beyond the difficulties as Jesus looked beyond the cross and scorned its shame and sits at the right hand of you, the Father. Jesus, would you help us to have your perspective?